Lord, as we begin a new session and a new series of lectures, we ask your blessing on us and may your spirit be with us as it always is. Uh, give us the inspiration that we need to really open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening and we just give you praise and thanksgiving that we can come together as free people and study the Holy Word of God. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Okay, well let's begin our session for this evening. The Gospel of Luke. Now, many of you are familiar with the Gospel of Luke. Uh, of course, we hear that every so often at Sunday Mass and uh, weekday Masses as well. Uh, this is actually the uh, cycle B. Remember that our liturgy is divided into three different portions, uh, three cycles or a, a three-year three cycle, I should say, and they designate it as cycle or, or year A, year B, and year C in that very original, of course. Um, and uh, this is year B, the year of St. Mark. But we are going to be talking about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've taught Mark, we've taught Matthew, we've taught them all. And, of course, this would be my sermon. Well, I don't know how many times I've taught this particular role. I've been teaching for 30 years or more. I've lost track. Okay. But Mark is one of the most beautiful and most complete of the four Gospels because it brings out, first of all, the infancy stories that are only in one other Gospel. And why? Anyone know why Mark has, Mark and Matthew have the infancy stories and Luke and Matthew is what I meant, meant to say. I'm sorry. Luke, I got to cut that out too, you see. Uh, Luke and Matthew uh, are the only ones that have the infancy stories, whereas Mark and John do not. And that is because the infancy stories were actually added long after the main part of the gospel was written. In many ways, like the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, was written long after many of the other books were written in order to give it a beginning. And that, of course, is how we start out uh, with this. If you think about John's Gospel or Mark's Gospel, it starts at Jesus' baptism, which we will talk about next week. and We'll get into the details of why that's important and why John and Mark started at that point. But Matthew and Luke wanted to go back and bring things forward in a chronological way. Now, not in the way that history is normally written. Remember, the Gospels are not history in the traditional sense. Neither is the Bible in any way considered history in the traditional sense of history. 
It is a retelling of the stories handed down for centuries, first verbally for nearly a thousand years, and then starting around the 10th century BC, did they or were they put down in some written form? But again, the Jewish way of writing was not to talk about things that weren't related directly to the subject at hand. Let me give you an example. The Acts of the Apostles that Luke also wrote was written during a very tumultuous time from the time after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to near the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD. Almost a period of 40 years. But it doesn't say a word about the problems of society at that time. Not a word. Because that wasn't Luke's objective. And so what I want to do when we are talking about various uh, portions of the Bible, various passages, I want to bring in some of the history, some of the background, so that you will understand why are we doing this? Why are we studying this? What is the reasons behind it? And we'll get into that even tonight on some of this. So we're going to take a little different look you can read all of the Gospel of Luke at home, and I certainly hope you will on a pre-assigned um, way. If you take and look at the back, the back of this handout, this is your home reading assignment for next week. It says. For our next meeting, February the 10th, the week from tonight, please read from the book that you will be given, this book here. All right, chapters 1 through 7 of the Gospel of Luke, along with the applicable commentary. For those of you who are not familiar with this kind of book, <coughs> excuse me, you will have the actual scripture up at the top. And then you will have a commentary below that. Now, be careful because it doesn't always follow exactly, you know, word for word up above. Uh, you'll get used to it as you go along. But read both the chapter of the scriptures that is assigned for each evening and the commentary. Now, between now and next week, I'd like you to read not only the introduction, which is just a couple pages, but chapters 1 through 7. Now, that sounds like a lot. It happens to be about 15 pages of this little book. should take you all of about an hour. Whoopee. Okay. Um, in subsequent weeks, we will not ask you to read that much. In subsequent weeks, we'll ask you to pay more attention to two or three chapters that you will read. Of course, you can read the whole thing if you want. That's up to you. But as far as the assignment goes, it'll be on here. And this will be at the door each evening as you come in. 
and it will ask you a few questions, such as which we have three questions here pertaining to next week. Why is the baptism of Jesus so important that the church honors this event with a special mass the second Sunday after Christmas? Also, Mark and John begin their Gospels at this point, the baptism. And why was it necessary for Jesus to be baptized at all? Right. So you can see what I'm trying to get at is the why. We all know what has happened. We've read that, hopefully. Why Now I want you to understand why. What is behind this? And how does the church look at that today? Remember, the early church could didn't understand a lot of the things that Jesus taught and a lot of the things that Jesus did. It took several years, sometimes centuries, before they truly understood some of the things that were taught. One of the most simple things is take the crucifix. We have them all over the place with the image of Christ and without. Early Christian churches didn't have any of those kinds of things around because they thought it was an embarrassment for their Lord to be hung up naked on a tree. In fact, that is one of the worst things that could be done to any human being was to be hung on a tree. And that is, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, it is a great embarrassment to be naked in front of anyone and to be hung on a tree only compounds that. And so I want you to understand why. Remember also, when I say tree, I literally mean tree. The crosses in those days were not nice clean wood with a barcode on the end like it just came from Home Depot. Okay. They were hewn trees. A lot of times it was just a trunk that was stripped and a dugout at the top where a crossbar was hauled up with a guy nailed to it. All right. Very crude. Not some of the pretty uh, crosses and crucifixes that we have today. So, my point is, you know, I don't want to belabor it, but it's important, I think, that we understand why these things happen. So, anybody have a problem with that? I hope that that fits in with why you came here tonight in the first place. The beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee seems to be given a great deal of attention. Why? And why do Mark and John leave out the stories? Well, we already talked about that, Jesus' birth and his younger days. So in addition to the events themselves, we are going to focus on the reasons why. This should help to better understand the, the latter events. And also the last comment, please remember that when you are studying scripture, and when I say study, I mean study, 
not just read. The big difference between just reading, like you read a novel, and study. Okay. If you don't understand, kind of go back over it. If there is a mark to indicate that there is a footnote, read the footnote. If there is a cross-reference indication that this same subject is mentioned or discussed somewhere else, go back and see where that is and what is said about that so that you can understand the background. Okay. Any questions? Let's move on. Because Christmas just, was just a few weeks ago, and most of you are familiar with the, the Christmas stories, uh, I'm not going to reread a lot of it, but I do want to talk about some of the things that fit into this why purpose here. First of all, the Gospel of Matthew opens up with a rather curious statement. It says, since many have undertaken, and this is Luke's words, since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us. That sounds like a real mouthful, but what it's saying is, Luke's gospel was written after Matthew and Mark's gospel. And those were well uh, distributed as best they could. Remember, everything written down had to be handwritten and transcribed or copied. No Xeroxes in those days. All right, so it took a while, but we assume that this was written somewhere around the middle of the first century and not really disseminated out to the, the general public for 15 or 20 years. It took that long for it to be copied and gotten out uh, by their primitive uh, mail routes or whatever. All right, so this is what it's really saying. So it says, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a mouthful of a word. It really means, uh, well, it can, it can have several meanings. Theo, of course, is Greek for God itself where we have the word theology. Theology means the study of God. All right, so wherever you have a word that begins with T-H-E-O, you know that it's got something to do with God. Theophilus, and if you think about it, like Minneapolis, Minneapolis really means many people, does it not? That's what it means, many people. All right, and so this word Theophilus could also mean the people of God or it could refer to an individual. In this culture, you would have wealthy patrons who would commission people or sponsor people 
to go out and do all kinds of research. And so Luke was one of these wealthy, educated Greek Jews. He came from Antioch in present-day Turkey, and he never was uh, a resident, you might say, of Israel. He always lived and came from Turkey, but Turkey at that time was a Greek province, and Greek was the primary language of the educated or the elite. And so everything that Luke did was from the Greek point of view or the Hellenistic point of view, which was a very high-level, well-educated, well-informed point of view. But it was not a very, very religious point of view unless you were a Jew, which apparently he was. Because although it doesn't say so, we can tell from the many little points that he brings out, he has a very well-rounded knowledge of Greek tradition and background. All right. And he brings all of that in. If he were not a Jew, then <coughs> excuse me, uh, he wouldn't have the background to write as he does. All right. So Theophilus, we can kind of assume, is probably a wealthy patron uh, or sponsor who supported Luke on his many travels. Excuse me, I'm going to have to get some water here. Uh, <coughs> my voice goes bad. If you'll just excuse me a minute. Luke then starts out with... <clears throat> The announcement of John's birth rather than Jesus. All right, now in your handout, yes, on the inside of the last page, what we have is, is a comparison. During this time of Greek culture, there were a lot of plays written. We know from, if you study Greek culture or mythology in any way, you know that there was a lot of writings in the form of plays. And various characters would come out and give their little speech, and then they would go back, and another character would come out, and so forth. That's almost the way chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Luke is written. You have... <clears throat> The Annunciation of John the Baptist is in chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. Then you have the Annunciation or the announcement of Jesus' coming birth in chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now, look at the comparison. He goes down, he has the presence of the parents, or presentation of the parents, or to the parents about the forthcoming birth their apparition of an angel, the entrance of an angel, the anxiety of uh, Zechariah, which sort of manifested its way of doubt, the anxiety of Mary, which was all more concern, the do not fear statement on either side, the announcement of the birth on both sides, the question, how shall I know this, uh, from Zechariah, 
the question, how shall this be done or how shall this happen from Mary? Uh, the angels answer and uh, on both sides and the sign, behold, thou shalt be struck dumb. Of course, we're talking about Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And in Mary's case, uh, the sign was that her kinswoman, Elizabeth, was also uh, with child, even though that she was quite on and past normal childbearing age. Uh, in the case of Zechariah, he was silenced for the full nine months of the uh, <clears throat> pregnancy. And in Mary's case, uh, Mary responds with, uh, do as you say, or be, let it be done unto me as you say. And then, of course, the departure of Zechariah. This could be actually done as a children's play at Christmas, and often is, right, because of the way it is written. Then we go on, the baptism, uh, or rather the birth of John the Baptist in chapters 1, verse 57 and 58, and of course Zechariah regains his speech because he agrees that the naming of the child should be John rather than one of his uh, close relatives uh, in the, the birth of Jesus is announced, and of course the joy of with the angels and eventually the uh, wise men and so forth. So you have uh, these parallels running back and forth. Uh, this is sort of the way that Luke has written his first part of the gospel. Now that's not to say that that's the way it's going to continue because you don't have the same similarities later on but it gives you an idea of the smoothness and the uh, prearranged ideas of Luke before he writes. In other words, it's just not a random writing. It's something that he has given a lot of attention to and sort of analyzed it uh, in this fashion before he writes it down. Okay. So... The one thing that I've found that's important to kind of remember is that you can see that Luke has analyzed everything that he has uh, reviewed in his search for the truth. That is what he is telling this uh, Theophilus here, this uh, patron or, or supporter that he has reviewed all of the documents that were available concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Luke did not personally know Jesus. So he is writing because it's important to him to search out what all of this discussion that these new Christians are talking about, and whether or not it is all true. Remember, Luke comes from Turkey. All right, so he wasn't in Israel during the rough times. And he only went through Israel later on as a companion to Paul. Paul was, uh, of course, commissioned by Jesus long after Jesus' death and resurrection by the personal apparition, and Paul was commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Well, then, eventually, Paul goes through Antioch in that area, and Luke joins him. And so that's where Luke gets a lot of his information, is from Paul. And then also we feel that Luke must have spent a lot of time with St. John, who then gave him the information regarding Mary and the birth of Jesus. Remember, John, St. John, the evangelist, was the one who took Mary into his home and his care after the crucifixion of Christ. And so the uh, information was handed down in a rather authoritative order. So it's important that uh, we kind of remember or be sort of remembered uh, where all this information came from. Now, yes, Bob? I misunderstood something. You mentioned that like Genesis, the beginning parts of Luke were added much later. Yes. Did you mean the ancient narrative? Yes, yes. Chapters 1 and... Huh? So Luke didn't do it, somebody else added it to Well, we don't know. Okay. We don't know if it was Luke who added it because it is written a little different. The language and style is a little different. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Genesis was the same way. Genesis was written long after Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Long after. Uh, and then added back to give it a base or a beginning. Okay, yeah. All right. Okay. Any other questions? Yes? That's right. As far as we know, he... Yes, yes. As far as we know, he did not have a direct contact with Mary. That's right. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes. Uh, well, in a way, yes. Uh, the lady just asked, did I mean to say that Luke traveled with Paul? And the answer is yes. When you read the Acts of the Apostles, which Luke also wrote, he talks about St. Paul did this, thus, and so, and we, meaning himself included, also did a lot of those things as well. Okay? Uh, as far as where they meet, we don't know. It's just sort of, he works into it, and it's like he's there present, but we don't know how they hooked up. And it's interesting because uh, he stayed with Paul for many years. And so, of course, that's where most of his theology comes from. All right. Although his book is not considered a gospel of theology, there is a lot of theology in it. All right. um, it's, it's one of the more interesting of, of the books. And when you read the companion, which is the Acts of the Apostles, you get a a broader view of Luke himself. And yet, after these two books are written, he fades out of history. We have no idea where he died, 
or when or anything else of that kind. So your operating assumption is that Luke uh, wrote this part himself, all the infantry stuff, but he did it much later in a different style. But it, it's the same guy that wrote it, though. We think so. Yes, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Uh, good, good, good point, Jerry. Uh, yes. <clears throat> the question that Jerry just asked was, in some previous session, I mentioned that there was a uh, another source, you might say, and that source we sort of designated as by the letter Q, which comes from the German word for quelle, or meaning source. All right. Um, much of the Bible history and background uh, that we accept today came from the Germans. And that's a whole other story that I don't want to get into because of too much detail. But this other source was probably, and I'm saying only probably because we're not sure, an earlier version of the Gospel of Matthew, which marked then took and sort of formed his gospel out of it. Mark's the earliest gospel that we are aware of. And then when Matthew comes along, <clears throat> he takes almost all of Mark's gospel and he adds some in the beginning and some on the end, and that's it. Luke feels, well, you've got Matthew and we got Mark out there and this other mysterious source, why reinvent the wheel? So Luke takes most of Mark's gospel and adds to it as well and goes on. And what I brought here is what we call a comparison Bible. And this is where you have the three or four Bibles lined up across from each other. So you can see where they are almost identical and where they have added new or different sources or information. I'll leave this up here so you can take a look at it. But these are the four Gospels and it is a what they call a comparison Bible. All right, It's just the Gospels though, but it has all four Gospels across the page. Uh, yes, sir? This is a comparison of the Catholic version not from King James or something like that. Uh, right, yes. All right. There's some qualifications in there, but they're minor. All right. Yeah. Not the King James, no. Okay. So if anyone wants to look at this afterwards, you're welcome to come up and, and look at it. All right. Okay. Let's talk about why Jesus came to be born, and why was he born, or was it necessary that he be born in Bethlehem? Mary, of course, came from Nazareth. We're not sure where Joseph came from, but we kind of assume it was probably somewhere in northern Israel. Um, so why did they travel all the way to Bethlehem, which is a short distance from Jerusalem? or perhaps 80 or so miles 
from um, Nazareth. 80 miles of that culture and at that time period is like 800 miles uh, today. All right. Jesus came for several reasons. And we'll get into most of those reasons towards the end when we're talking about his passion, death, and resurrection. But he came to earth as an example, as a pure sacrificial lamb that we'll talk about later, uh, and for a number of reasons. But he came most of all as a babe born in a stable, not a manger, a stable, because it was the lowest of the low, you might say. And he ended up dying the same way. Why? To show mankind the depths to which God will go to save his people. The extremes to which God will go to save his people. He could have come as a knight in shining armor, you know, with a great white horse and uh, entourage of soldiers and so forth. He could have come, you know, as a high priest with a crown and uh, fancy robes and all of that. But he chose to come just as you and I do, born naked from our mother's womb, and in his case, born in a lowly stable because there was no room for him in an inn or anyone else's house. Why was he born in Bethlehem? If you go back into uh, the second book of Samuel and the first book of Kings, it talks about the Jewish people back in the 11th century B.C., wanting a king. Up to that point, they never had a king. They always had uh, judges and other rulers, such as uh, Moses and Aaron and Samson and those kinds of people, uh, Joshua and Caleb and so forth. They never had a king, but they wanted a king because all the other nations had kings. And they wanted a king more or less for identity purposes. They were a large nation now, and they wanted identity. God said that he didn't want them to have a king, that he was their king, and he would provide for them. And they said, no, they want a king. So God says, all right. And he gave them Saul. Well, not not St. Paul. We're talking about the first king of the Jewish monarchy, whose name was Saul. And he started out as a good man, a strong man, but he got carried away as politicians, uh, royalty will do, uh, with a little bit of authority and so forth, and ended up uh, being not a very good person. So God eventually um, got rid of him, but not after... Uh, many, many years. We don't know exactly, but let's say close to 40. Um, and brought in David. King David. King David was the epitome of 
the greatness, did a wonderful job and ruled for nearly 40 years also. He united all of Israel. Israel had been previously divided into 12 uh, different little serfdoms, you might say, uh, with the 12 tribes of Israel or the remnants of the 12 tribes of Israel with some exceptions. And he united all of those uh, with himself being the king and Jerusalem being the center of the faith. They used to have temples all over the place. And he got rid of all of the temples. He said only one temple, only one legitimate sacrifice would be in that temple in Jerusalem. And that is where God would be present. So even though they didn't really have a temple building uh, in Jerusalem during David's time, that came with his son Solomon, <coughs> um, who built the glorious temple of Solomon. Uh, it was in the temple that God reigned. And it was in the temple with the Holy of Holies that Jewish people at that time period, the 10th century we're talking about BC, where God actually showed his presence. And the people worshiped God in the temple. All right? The sacrifices, though, you know, the sacrifices of sheep and bullocks and pigeons and all of that stuff was not in the temple. You could imagine the smoke and the aroma and uh, or or not so much the aroma but the other <clears throat> this okay the stench right uh, no so the altar was outside the altar was outside in any case anyone wonders I can bring in copies of what the temple looked like but the altar was outside so that the smoke and everything else could escape all right but the Holy of Holies was inside the temple inner court. That is the, uh, the court of the priest and the court of the Holy of Holies was relatively small, roughly 18 feet by 18 feet square. It was actually a cube, 18 feet wide, 18 feet deep, and 18 feet tall. Okay, Actually, uh, 12 cubits, according to the book of Leviticus. Um, and then, of course, the courts of the priests were a bit, a little bit larger. Then you have several other courts. So the temple area was rather large and still is today. Uh, but it is occupied by, of course, the, the, uh, uh, blue mosque, uh, of the Muslim people. Okay, that area. Uh, now, why Bethlehem? Because that is where King David was born, in the city of Bethlehem. And God promised David that there would always be a member of his descendants on the throne of Israel. Well, over 1,500 years or 1,000 years, I should say more accurately, uh, things changed a lot, but there was always a descendant or a remnant of some uh, of David's family. And of course, David was of the tribe of Judah, and so was Jesus. 
And Jesus, being a descendant of David, had to be born according to the uh, prophecies of several prophets, particularly Malachi, um, that David, I mean, that uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And of course, that is why, uh, it's a long story, but that is why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, even though it was quite an inconvenience. Can you imagine a, a woman nine months pregnant uh, riding a donkey for 80 miles? No wonder she had uh, the birth the moment she got there, you know. Um, anyways, but that's, that's important. Now, Mary's role. Let's talk a little bit about Mary's role in this scene. Mary wasn't just somebody that God sort of chose out of random. He didn't sort of look down there and say, oh, there's a nice little girl, I'll pick her. Uh-uh. Mary was somebody that was in God's mind's eye way before creation. Was somebody that God had to have set apart from all other mankind because she was going to bear his divine son for nine months. And because God is perfect and mankind is not perfect, you can't have the perfect within the non or imperfect for that period of time. And so God had to make this person, Mary, perfect right from the beginning. And that is mentioned in the story of Adam and Eve. So we know that it was thought of way back, long before uh, all of the other historical events of the Old Testament, because it came from the book of Genesis, right up during the story of Adam and Eve, when, Gia, when God is talking to the serpent, and he talks about a woman and her seed will crush the head of the serpent, who was supposed to be the symbol of evil or the devil. Okay, And that is mentioned in a way to give the Jewish people at the time and later some ray of hope that there would be a solution to their problem, their dilemma of being separated from God after all of this time of having access to God in the Garden of Eden. And now, of course, Adam and Eve are being put out because of their disobedience and their sin. All right. So it's important that you understand that God had to have, not only in this case, but in many other cases, a human counterpart, a human partner. And that's the way I would like you to look at Mary. You know, we have a tendency to put her on pedestals and think, oh, she is so wonderful and she's so holy and so forth and I'm so unworthy. Well, that all of that is true, but let's not go overboard. Mary was still a human being. She was not God, but she was made special 
by God right from the beginning of creation because she was going to be God's partner, you might say, human partner, in bringing the Messiah to earth. Now, God had other human partners for other reasons. For example, we talked earlier about St. Paul. St. Paul was a special partner pulled out of the ranks of those people who were persecuting the Christians for a number of years. But because of certain qualities that he had, God pulled him out of that and made him the apostle to the Gentiles. And it was through Paul that we have most of the theology that the early church was able to develop. Paul is the first theologian of the early church. We have a number of other special uh, partners, you might say. Look at Moses. The way Moses was used by God as God's spokesperson to the early Jews. Moses is the most influential person in the Old Testament. He speaks for God. We have a number of others, uh, but I want to get into that. I think you got the idea. But think of Mary not only as a very holy woman, which she was, but think of her more as God's partner in bringing the Christ child into humanity, bringing God himself into human form. <laughs> John, John the Baptist's role. John the Baptist, you might say, is another partner. It was prophesied by Isaiah and a number of others that there would be someone who would come before the day of the Lord. That's the way it's always referred to in the Old Testament. Come before the Messiah as a, you might say, as an announcer or as a precursor, as somebody who would get the people ready. All right. And John, that was John the Baptist's role. He was the person that Isaiah talked about uh, back in the 8th century B.C. Uh, he was the person that came and really got people started in thinking about repentance for the remission of sin. Now, there were other people. Baptism wasn't new to the Jewish people. But baptism at that time was a private or a personal ceremony that you would go through to demonstrate your um, repentance, your turning to God in a very special way and doing penance. Remember, repentance and penance are two different things. One... <coughs> Penance begins with a repentance, which is a comes from the Greek word for turning metanoia, from turning around. And penance is an illustration of your repentance. 
So one is personal, interior, mental, spiritual. The other is exterior, physical. The interior is your repentance. Your exterior is penance. You'll get more of that uh, as we get closer to Lent, which starts three weeks from tomorrow. So John the Baptist's role was to announce the coming of Jesus, which he does when people go to him and say, you know, what about this guy over here that you're kind of referring to? And the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to unloosen the strap of his sandal. And they said, well, you know, people are leaving you and they're going over to him. And John says, that's right. I must decrease as he increases. So number uh, a number of John the Baptist's followers eventually did become followers of Christ, James and John. Uh, most notably. (coughs) Excuse me. There's one um, little story at the end of chapter 1 that you're all familiar with. And this is when Jesus, around the age of 13, gets lost, so-called lost, but he he knows where he was. No one else did, but... He knew where he was, so he wasn't lost. It was they who were lost. Anyways, he gets lost, you might say, and uh, Mary and Joseph has to go find him, and after three days of searching, they find him in the temple. Okay. Well, too many people read more into that than is really there. Because, now Dee is going to disagree with me, but that's all right. Um, The whole idea of Jesus spending 30 years in the privacy of his home with his mother and foster father Joseph was to experience life as any human being would at that time. He did not work miracles. He did not, as uh, I often have said in other classes, in the elementary school that I went to, there used to be a beautiful picture in the hallway of uh, little boys sitting around making clay pigeons or something of that kind. <coughs> and you could always tell who Jesus was because he had the halo around, you know. And you could always tell who John the Baptist was, even though um, John the Baptist probably uh, did not know Jesus when they were young. but. He's in the background with a little lesser halo around. And all of a sudden, one of the clay pigeons in the hand of Jesus comes alive and floats away. You know, well, it's a nice little story, but no, no, no. Those kind of things did not happen. Jesus lived 30 years, just like you and I, in the home of Mary and Joseph. Now, a couple exceptions. Because of their unique birth, or his unique birth. Do you think Mary and Joseph kept that to themselves? No. They shared it with him as he was able to understand, as he grew up. They shared that kind of story, that unique 
form of birth and all of the incidents, you know, and the angels and the wise men and the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and all of that stuff and the flight into Egypt, if that really happened or not, we don't know. Uh, that kind of thing it was shared with Jesus. And then Mary, being a very holy lady, encouraged Jesus to search the writings, the scriptures, as to what this could have meant in reference to him, if any. Because Mary was not, even though she was enlightened in a spiritual sense, she was not, you know, clairvoyant or in a physical sense. So she didn't know and understand all of these details either. All right? So Jesus obviously studied scripture and had a very unique relationship, a prayer relationship with his father, even at the age of 12 or 13. So when they go down to Jerusalem, as they did twice or sometimes three times a year for the great feast, Passover, the Feast of Booths, and one other, which I forget offhand. Okay, not Hanukkah. Hanukkah did not exist in those days. All right, uh, that is more of modern uh, Jewish uh, celebration. Okay, but when he gets lost and he's found after three days, talking to the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, and he utters the the great after Mary says, you know, son, why have you done this to us? You kept us worrying and, you know, so forth and so on for three days. And so he said, well, you know, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And everybody thinks, well, you know, that means that Jesus knew exactly who he was at the age of 12 or 13, that he was God and he had this great um, mission out there and he was working on it. Uh-uh. Every firstborn male could say exactly the same thing because they were all dedicated as sons of God, sons with a small s, all right? We capitalize it because Jesus was the unique son of God in a divine uh, sense and, and a theological sense. But every firstborn Jewish male could say that very same thing, that he was a son of God, and that the temple was God's house. They all should have said that. So don't read too much into that, because I and many, I hate to put myself into the class of theologians, but I and many Bible scholars believe that Jesus did not fully understand that he was God until his baptism. All right. Now, there will be several people who may disagree with me, uh, but they can't prove or disprove what I'm saying. All right. But it is my th belief, and there's reasons for it, which I, we don't have time to get into tonight, that Jesus was not aware, fully aware, of his divinity until his baptism. And then next week, tune in next week and I'll explain that further. All right? um, but the story in the end of chapter 2 ends with us sort of believing 
that uh, Mary and Joseph kind of pulled him by the ear out of there and said, you know, we're going home to Nazareth. Come on, let's go. Uh, whether they did or not, we don't know. But I assume that he was treated like any other child because at that point in time, they weren't aware of his great mission that was coming up. So uh, don't read too much into that little story. Uh, but it is, it's a nice little story and it has a certain meaning, but uh, too many people put too much into it. Okay. All right, any questions? So I hope that you um, are accepting or will accept my way of teaching this particular gospel. It's more important that you understand the background than some of the, the details. Like I said, the details you can read. Ma uh, Luke writes very clearly. You don't have to dig too far to understand. But when, as all of the writers of the Gospels and the books of the Bible have done, they use a lot of symbols and metaphors. And when they do, we'll talk about those kinds of meanings because it's important that you understand the whys and wherefores rather than just what is being said. Yes, sir? Not necessarily. Um, your question is, is a good one. And let me paraphrase it a little bit so everybody can hear. The gentleman is asking, uh, in comparing the doubt that Zachary, the father of John the Baptist, had when the angel uh, said that he and his wife were going to uh, conceive and have a child. He doubted that because they were of advanced age. And he, you know, like, like a, a true man, you know, he's going to have to have proof. Um, Whereas Mary, it wasn't doubt in Mary's case. She was concerned because she had never had any um, sexual relations with anybody. And how was that going to take place? Because uh, tradition tells us that she um, sort of volunteered her virginity to God forever. And this would, of course, then be in somewhat of a uh, contradiction of that vow she took. So one was doubt, one was concern. The punishment was not so much as punishment, but a sign of sincerity and importance that was given. <laughs> let me let me add to that a little bit. That as we've often, I've often taught here is that whenever God dictates a child's name before it's born, or wherever God changes a person's name later in life, it is the sign of that change. Excuse me. That represents a sign that that person 
is going to be a, have a special role in God's plan of salvation. <clears throat> you have a number of people throughout the Bible whose name was changed, starting with Abraham and his wife Sarah. Or that's how we know them. Their names were originally Abram, A-B-R-A-M, and Sarai. And God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah because they became the mother and father of the Jewish nation. Then you have Samuel, uh, and you have Samson, and then you later on you have um, in the New Testament you have Jesus himself, whose name was dictated uh, before he was born. John the Baptist, the person we're just talking about, his name was dictated <coughs> before he was born. Uh, St. Paul's name was formerly Saul, and it was changed to Paul. Uh, St. Peter, Peter's name was Simon, and it was changed to Peter. All of those people, and there are several others, particularly in the Old Testament, all of them had a very special role in God's plan of salvation. So it was important that John the Baptist's father understand that this child's name was to be John and not something according to family tradition in that sense. And so it was more of a warning, do as you're told, so to speak. Uh, and this is why. You can see that the punishment was uh, remitted or taken away after the child was born and he was named John according to the dictate of God through the angel. Yes? It was arranged, you know, the usual arrangement. And of course, if God asks you to do something, whatever you promised before is going to change. And so that's why she accepted it. Uh, and, but she was concerned because of her vow of virginity uh, and how was this going to interfere or, or upset that. So it was more of a, a question of concern rather than doubt in uh, Zachary's case. Um, Zachary, of course, the doubt was sort of normal because here he was an old guy and his wife was way beyond childbearing age. So, you know, how is this going to happen? Uh, it's more of a play on words, you know. And again, it's not really that significant to the overall. Um, but then we have the idea of the name is far more important. And that's where we get <coughs> this idea of, of changing names is where we get the idea of taking a new name when we are confirmed. Or in years gone by, a Catholic child was not officially named until he or she was baptized. Um, that's the old tradition. Now, of course, with uh, 
these uh, photographs before the child is even born, you know, they're, they're named and they get all kinds of clothes and so forth to go along with it before the child is even born. Technology does change things, you know. If uh, a gospel was written today about some important person, it sure wouldn't match up with the other three or four over there. Okay. Yes, sir. Earlier on, you were talking about why does only Mark and Luke have the early childhood? Matthew and Luke. Matthew. And you said something to the effect that it was because they were written later and it was added. But John was the last gospel written. Yeah. So there's a yeah. contradiction. Well, <clears throat> what I'm what I mean is later. It might have been, you know, a few years after. <clears throat> but you and that's not unusual. Even writers today will take uh, and write a story and then add on something up front to give the reader a better understanding of what came before it. So, later in the yes, well, not so much Matthew, but later in the in the life of Luke. Yeah, <clears throat> later in the life of Luke. No, no, and they're entirely different. That's another thing that that distinguishes Matthew's infancy stories from uh, Luke's infant stories. Matthew wrote his gospel because Matthew was a strong, bullheaded Jew. Pardon the expression, you know, and he wrote it to convince his peers that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. So he writes from the masculine Jewish point of view. And that's why Matthew's infancy stories center around Joseph. Mary is hardly mentioned. Luke, on the other hand, is from the Hellenistic Greek background. The Hellenists always uh, lifted up their women and thought very highly and respectful of women. And you'll see that throughout Luke's gospel. And so his infancy stories center on Mary. Joseph is hardly mentioned. And it's not because they want to be different. It's because they are different in their life outlook, their experiences, the fact that Luke was never a traditional Israelite Jew. He was a Greek Jew. And so many of the little uh, innuendos and nuances that Matthew puts into his gospel are totally absent from Luke's gospel because they wouldn't have made any sense to a Greek audience. So that's why you have these wide differences between the Gospels. John's Gospel 
as Ruth just pointed out, was written towards the end of the first century. And his gospel is entirely different again because he had all of this time to not only be with Jesus for three years, but to think about those three years and their significance. And so his gospel, written late in his life, as well as late in the century, is more of a Christology rather than a biography. In other words, it takes the mysticism of Christ and tries to bring it down and put it into our language for our understanding. <clears throat> you can always look at John's gospel uh, as written on two levels, the spiritual level and the earthly level. All of the books of the Bible do that to some degree, but John's gospel is written at such a lofty level that you have to question whether he's really talking about real people or is he using real incidents in a metaphorical way to bring out the Christology of Christ himself. For example, this is uh, an example that I use over and over, so many of you have heard it before. In the story in, Matthew, in Luke's, I'm sorry, I get them all mixed up. In the story of John's Gospel, when he talks about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and the apostles went off to the village to get some food, and he's sitting there resting at the well, and she comes to draw water. He asks the Samaritan woman for some water to drink. And of course, that's a big no-no in Jewish culture. Uh, first of all, a man would never speak to a strange woman on, uh, out in public. And secondly, a strict Jew would never talk to a Samaritan under any circumstances. But here he starts a conversation with her and asks for, uh, you know the story, you've heard it many times, I'm sure. And this is where they get into a conversation about the Samaritan form of worship versus the Jewish form of worship. And there's reasons for that. Uh, <clears throat> and Jesus talks to her and explains several things. And then he says, go off to your village and, and bring your husband back. And she says, well, she said, um, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, rightly. So, you've had five husbands, and the current guy you're living with isn't your husband either. And of course, you know, her eyes light up, and she knows that he's someone real special, and accepts the fact because he tells her he's the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So she runs off. Well, the story sounds real good on that basis. But theologians take that story and say, that is really a metaphor of Jewish history where the woman represents Israel. The five husbands that she had represented the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. 
and the current guy that she's lived with now are the Romans. Okay. So, all of John's gospel can be looked upon in that way. Was he really talking about just what we hear, what we read, or is it far deeper? And in most of the cases, it's far deeper. And that story is only in John? That story is only in John, yes. The woman at, uh, or the marriage feast of Cana is another one. It's a foreshadowing of our Eucharistic service. The changing of water into wine. We change wine into the body and or the blood of Christ. Same kind of thing. You can take each of those pieces in there and use them as a symbol for something far greater. So you've got to be very careful with John's Gospel. I think it's probably the most beautiful of all the Gospels, but it's not easy to understand unless you are well-founded in all of the other Gospels. Then you go to that one. And so I don't teach that, uh, let's say, to beginners. Uh, of course, none of you are beginners, I'm sure. 